Tonight, a CBS Evening News special report. The Scott Paper Company, citing panic buying on the retail level, said today it is implementing an allocation system for the national distribution of toilet tissue. A Scott spokesman said unfounded rumors of a shortage has caused excessive demand at retail outlets. He added the allocation system is necessary to replenish depleted inventories. Here's an interesting item, and it's kind of funny, but it's kind of tragic in a way. Uh, of all the shortages we have, there's a gasoline shortage. You know what else is disappearing from the supermarket shelves? Toilet paper. Ha ha ha, you can laugh now. There is an acute shortage of, of toilet paper in the good old United States. We gotta quit writing on it. But I wanna tell you, it is serious. I just saw a commercial where I know it's coming. Uh, where Mrs. Olson comes in with a shopping bag. And the housewife says, forget the coffee, just give me the shopping bag. I want to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Rolling Thunder. We're talking Dice Masters. The beauty of the underlying mechanics, the hidden complexities in the strategy, tactics, and decisions of competitive play. If you're just starting the game or have been here since the first set, hopefully you'll find something in this show that'll do you some good. So shake up your bag, reconnoiter your opponent, and get ready to roll. Welcome to Shuffling Thunderclap, your quarantine podcast about starting 10,000 unfinished projects, sleeping until noon, reading way too much news, and occasionally thinking about Dice Masters. I'm your host, Smedley McGillicuddy, and with me, as usual, is my co-host, Tough Todd O'Shaughnessy. Tough Todd, what's cooking today? Yeah, I'm just uh, (laughs) out in the the back there, I'm having myself a... A cigar, you know, as as one does in these trying times. And it occurred to me, there ain't no toilet paper left. Well, that's nice. But in all seriousness, let's talk a little Dice Masters. Given the pandemic, things might be a little quiet out there, but we've got a full show for you today. Not one guest, not two guests, but three. For sure. And although you're going to hear the usual slobbernock, cloggernock, agus gloggernock, we're going to be mixing things up a bit. We're going deep into the psychology of the mind. But before we do that, we're going to get into a little bit of one big weekend news. As our regular listeners already know, because of the COVID-19 outbreak, we've postponed the in real life local tournaments and the one big weekend online final until we come out from under this mess. But we've decided to throw a couple of what we're calling one big weekend Corona Consolation tournaments while we wait. Think of them each as a virtual online local in quotes OBW tournament, one for North America and one for Europe. Indeed. And just like a traditional local OBW tournament, the top two finishers of each of these one big weekend Corona Consolation tournaments will be qualified to play in the one big weekend online final later this year. But when will these be happening, you might ask? May 16th would be the answer. But at what time exactly, and what will be the format, you might ask? 
Stick around and listen, because we're going to come to a decision on those answers live on air tonight. For those events, we're going to be prizing the top four finishers. So if you finish in the top four, make sure you get me your address. As you all know, the CR Game Room has been running some fantastic tournaments online for a couple years now, and Ryan and company have been honing their craft to a science. So I want to acknowledge and thank them for letting us piggyback on their infrastructure. We're using their challenge account to run the tournament, so if you sign up for challenge... Which is free, by the way. You can register for the North American or the European tournament there. And if you haven't already joined Discord, and specifically the CR Game Room server, you're probably going to want to do that, because not only... Not only is it a great place to get your daily fix of Dice Masters chatter, and not only is it the perfect place to congregate before, during, and after the OBWCCT tournaments, but if you link your Challenge account to Discord, there's a bot on the CR Game Room Discord server that will integrate with Challenge and pass along what they're calling station assignments, think Google Hangout Rooms, to you and their Discord channel without even having to look for that information in Challenge itself. None of this is required, but it just makes it super easy and seamless on the day. You can find links to how to sign up for Challenge and Discord at our One Big Weekend CCT post, which you can find at... rollandthunder.xyz forward slash obw2020 cct no apostrophe no g. Or you can find all the info discussed in this episode in our show notes for this episode at... rollandthunder.xyz forward slash... 212 for season 2 episode 12 and if you are not yet a member of the cr game room discord server send us an email via our contact page at rollandthunder.xyz and what a surprise and we'll make sure we get you an invite that'll be good for 24 hours ryan's even given me permission to say that plus he's already set up a couple of one big weekend cct channels in the cr game room server and incorporated a bot through which you can automatically upload your teams on the server when you're ready to do so. Check it out. Okay, so after you joined Challenge and Discord and accepted the invite from the CR Game Room Discord server and also linked your Challenge account to your Discord account, what do you do next? Well, all of that is spelled out on the One Big Weekend CCT post as well as in the show notes for this episode. So once you get your eyes on that, you're going to want to click on the CR Game Room Challenge event link that will take you to the One Big Weekend 2020 Challenge page and allow you to register for the event. That'll also hopefully keep you updated with future One Big Weekend news on the whole. Most importantly, registering for either the North American or the European One Big Weekend CCT will let us know you intend to play in the event and help us with some of the prep work. Team lists are going to be due Wednesday, May 13th at 11 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, which I believe is 7 a.m. the next day in the UK. Once again, follow the directions on the OBW CCT post to learn how to submit your teams via Discord, and you'll also find a link to that post in the show notes for this episode at rollandthunder.xyz <laughs> forward slash 212. So then, on the day of the tournament, May 16th, you'll go back to the OBW Challenge link and sign in a half hour before the start of the tournament to let us know you're online and ready to go. It's important to state that you have to register first, and you can do that today, and then you have to also sign in a half hour before the start of the tournament so that we know you're there. If you don't sign in, the tournament might start without you and you won't be assigned to a bracket. 
If you have any questions about Challenge or how the station slash gaming rooms will work with the new Jitsi video conferencing infrastructure, Ryan from the CR Game Room has written up a very detailed FAQ page that should answer all of your questions and your concerns. And once again, you can find that FAQ on our post at rollandthunder.xyz forward slash obw2020cct or at our show notes for this episode at rollandthunder.xyz forward slash 212. Phew, all right, shall we get down to business? Johnny. Little hole. My galore, this episode is going to be like a cosmic intersection, like the Man-Thing's hometown of Citrusville, the nexus of all realities, because not only are we bringing back one of the all-time Dice Masters greats from the past, we're colliding two podcasting Dice Masters universes into one Reese's Pieces sandwich. Move over, Marvel vs. DC. For our first guest, I bring you one of the all-time great brewers and pilots in the history of the game, a former member of the reserve pool, a winner of more WKOs than a mutant cat has toes. I honestly believe it was eight. Winner of the 2016 Utah PDC, the winner of the 2017 Regional Salt Lake Gaming Championship, and the second place finisher at the 2016 U.S. National Championships. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Michael And our other guests might also be known as the two-headed Hydra from the United Kingdom, the by-beast of Dice Masters, Diceaholics, because you demanded it, because it was long overdue, I bring you the creator of historical Dice Masters, the president of the Federation of Elite Dice Masters players, with too many AKAs to mention, except for him also being known as your 2017 United Kingdom national champion, and his cohort in crime, the creator of Brit Roller 6, a top four finisher at the 2018 UK Nationals, the winner of the 2019 Online Rest of the Worlds Tournament, and a top eight finisher in the 2019 European Championship. Diceaholics, put your hands together for Andy England and Chris True Mr. Six. William. I think that's the first time that I've been introduced before you, mate. <laughs> Is it ever? Is it really? Andy England and his cohort Chris. <laughs> that's the first time for everything, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Gentlemen, welcome to Rolling Thunder. It's our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yes, thank you. That was quite the intro. Well, you know, it, it all goes downhill from here, but uh, I try to bring the enthusiasm to start it out with. <laughs> I thought Mike's intro was mine to start off with. <laughs> well, fellas, it's great to have all of you on the show. Just to bring a little order into what is certain to be a fair amount of chaos to follow. There are several reasons why I've summoned you all to Citrusville today. And the first being that, Mike, you've always been on our short list to have on the show. And we've heard your name mentioned repeatedly on the Ministry of Dice. So we thought, why not bring you guys all together? <laughs> well, I'm honored. This is exciting to be here. I, it brings back a lot of memories from the glory days. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> also, Chris and Andrea, I, I, I owe you guys an apology. I was on uh, the CR Game Room this past week, and I was really there to talk about one big weekend and kind of to set the stage for that. But Ryan asked me about how Roland Thunder came to be. And at the moment when I was answering the question, I thought I was saying that 
when we first started, the Ministry of Dice was the only remaining Dice Masters podcast on the air, and that we felt that there needed to be some other equally great voices on the airwaves evangelizing the game. But when I listen back to the show, I'm afraid it came off like, I mean, I guess I phrased it like in a way that it sounded like I, I felt the MOD wasn't good enough. I said something like, there was only the MOD, and so we decided to start up, which might, you know, which might have came off. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> which might have came... I mean... <laughs> I made a note of it in my little book. <laughs> well, Don't worry. I'm sorry. It was, that was not my intention at all. Uh, uh, but <laughs> anyway, I'm not sure if anybody but you had listened to that, but that wasn't that. <laughs> what are you saying about CR Game Room? <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking to all of us. Every, no one's listening to any of this stuff right now. You were spitting in the wind. You know it. But <laughs> we're having fun doing it. Uh, anyway, I, I definitely watched it. No, no apology <laughs> necessary. I did not. Inter- <laughs> intent and you know result are two very different things, and that's not how I interpreted what you said, so. You're okay. You're okay. <laughs> I, I, uh, plus, through the episode, you guys mentioned me at least six times. So that that always gets a thumbs up <laughs> on a YouTube vid. Did I get a mention? Yeah, many times, Andy. Many times. Uh, excellent. Well, consider this a public apology. Uh, Luke and I love your show, so just let's get that out there. First off, we just felt like you know the more the merrier, more voices, good for the health of the game, and the game at that point in time, especially needed you know a lot of kind of buttressing, and you know, so that's what I was trying to say. Uh, Oh, mate, we love it. We love it. We love having um, competition out there that we can parody the theme song of. (laughs) There you go. There you go. (laughs) You see, I haven't even thrown a lawsuit at you. See, what a nice guy I am. Uh, That's because it clearly falls under. This ain't no Susie Lou case. That clearly falls under the the parameters of fair usage. (laughs) Yeah, you're under eight seconds, too. I'm a fully trained lawyer, mate. Don't worry about that. I mean, you're so out of tune, it counts as its own song (laughs) (laughs) all right well i also wanted to publicly salute you for volunteering chris to to help run the european one big weekend corona consolation tournament happening on may 16th and before we jump into the rest of the show let's settle on the start times for the events and the formats that's right we're doing it live (laughs) <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? So first off, we spit out a questionnaire about a week ago, just asking the players out there what time would be best. So for the Europeans, what what was the final result? What When do you guys want to have your tournament? Yeah, so uh, very usefully, we had nine choices and all nine respondents <laughs> picked a different time slot. <laughs> Which... <laughs> As with many other questions, it was a straight or three-way split. However, there does seem to be a concentration around the late afternoon, early evening space. So to meet a compromise, we're going to get started at 5 p.m. British summertime. Right on. 5 p.m. British summertime, done. Here in the U.S., people were pretty much overwhelmingly wanting the morning. So we're going to start 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And I'm going to put all of this information up at the One Big Weekend page at Rolling Thunder, so you can check there. But 10 a.m. North America, 5 p.m. Europe, correct? Yeah, well, 5 p.m. British summertime. It will be 6 p.m. on the mainland. Got it. Okay, cool. Everybody got that? No more questions. <laughs> all right, so now let's pick a format. Now, this was, this was a much harder thing Ooh. now. If my memory serves me correctly, the questionnaire really was crazy for Europe, correct? Uh, well, in Europe, we've got, um, again, a, a straight three-way split. The, the, there was no definitive standout format. So we've got a third of the respondents were looking for something really hardcore, modern 2020, uh, let's burn it all down. Right. We had a third of the respondents <laughs> looking for that mid-level thematic and a third looking for something goofy. 
So it's, it's a real challenge. Uh, we had some debate uh, amongst myself and Arge and also the, the other members of the council, yep. committee, council, whatever we're calling ourselves. Dirty council. And, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and I think what, what we're going to try and do, again, in the, in the interest of compromise and, and keeping it even and level, is we're going to go for modern 2020, but with a short restrictions list. Okay. Um, and that'll be the same for both Europe and North America. Is that right, Arjun? That sounds like a plan. Okay, so for North America, there was a little more consensus. About 40% of the people wanted something orange level, mid-level, something with some restrictions. 26% wanted full-on, full-throttle. 26% wanted goofy. So we're going to try to aim for the middle. And so the discussion we had came around, let's ban four cards. And the four cards we're going to ban are the two overcrushing Beckys. Yeah. We're going to ban Asuka, the two-cost yeah. reducer. <laughs> and we're going to ban Yawning Portal, the comfortable in version of that. I think that you should also ban Jerry Lawler and then unban the four-cost Becky Lynch. But... We had we had a discussion about that. I put that. There were some other choices. I talked about possibly banning Jerry and keeping him Becky's. But the majority voted to do the other. So there's also some discussion about banning the Godcatcher, but ultimately, oh wait, wait, no, the Godcatcher, the Godcatcher is gone. Too. Okay, the Godcatcher is also gone. Sorry, there's five cards. God do, do you know what, Luke? And I was, I was with you. Uh, the position you've taken there, I, I entirely support because I think that Jerry Lawler is the cosmic cube to Becky Lynch's Yuanti. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also, for for agreeing with me, I'll revoke my statement about you being out of tune. <laughs> Your pitch was perfect. <laughs> Yeah, you know, when I originally came up with this idea, I was just going to let it fly and see, you know, where the medicine stood and all that kind of stuff. But I just feel like it seems from, at least from getting the feedback from the questionnaire, that a lot of people are kind of stressed out and full of enough worry and anxiety locked in their homes that something lighter and a little bit more welcoming to all players might be a little bit better. So we're going to take the foot off the throttle a little bit. And uh, ban those five cards. Again, it's the two Beckys, the Godcatcher, Asuka. And the Yawning Portal. And the Yawning Portal. Guess that's what we're going to go. May 16th. So sign up. Sign up on Challenge. Follow all those directions that I gave at the beginning of the show, and we'll be good to go. Very good. So before... Not that good. (laughs) I I stapled that Becky Lynch to my mat. Well, you can put the you can put the man version. Well, the, the global is still in the game. You could still use the man version of her. The man version of it. <laughs> <laughs> Some argue that's the best one. I thought she was quite pretty. I mean, no, the, the the man doesn't have the global. It does have the global. I'm pretty sure that it, one's the it, only it one does. that's they just text. No, no, they have the global. They oh, all have the global. Let me get my. I know because I've out. messed it up before. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, before we turn our attention to the main topic today, I thought we might talk a shop a little bit with Mr. Plum while we have him here, and Andy and Chris, feel free to chime in. So. Mike, first of all, welcome. Oh, thank you. And where where did, you know, one of the things that, that the Ministry of Dice constantly brings up is your 100-hour practice <laughs> routine. Where where did that come from, and, and how did you come to that number? Was it, you know, sort of a condensed version of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, or, or how did you arrive at 100 hours? Well, it was for statistics, actually. <laughs> so uh, I was trying to determine <laughs> which cards should be banned, and I was trying to determine what the advantage of the first person to go versus second person to go before they remove that extra die. Remember the the good old days where right. second place always seemed to lose more than whoever went first. So yeah. I was running a whole bunch of numbers for WizKids so I could send them a report 
on the statistics of the exact same decks going against each other's win rates. So I would play uh, hundreds of games against each other and then uh, submit those statistics to different people who cared. Cool. And 100 makes it easy for percentages, I'm sure, right? Yeah, it makes it easy for percentages. <laughs> and then after I did that so much for the statistics, I started doing that for my own deck testing. And the rest is history. That's cool. Okay. All right. Well, that's a very practical answer to. to I, I wasn't expecting something so practical. That's that's how. <laughs> I always imagined it was the Anders Ericsson stroke Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hours of practice thing. <laughs> right. Um, I wish it was so sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> was there a point where you like felt like oh, I'm at eighty and I'm I'm kind of getting burned out, but I got to make it to a hundred, or or did it always feel like? Or by the time you got to hundred, did you feel like I still need more more data? Well. It's kind of funny. At first, it was kind of mind-numbing, and then I started winning some WKOs, and I was like, wow, this there must be something right. to this. And then I got into that you know, mentality where I like winning. It's not as fun to not win, and I wanted to keep doing that. <laughs> yeah. So it became less and less of a burden and more of, okay, this, this wins 63% of the time. Can I get a deck that wins 64%? Got it. So the next 100 didn't seem so bad. And when you were practicing these games, were you taking it all the way from start to finish, or were you only going like six turns in? I mean, how, how were you practicing when you were doing Start that? to finish every time, for sure. Mm -hmm. And were you doing full rolls, or were you setting the dice? Or, you know, different people oh, have different ways of practicing. Uh, I'm just oh, curious. Yeah, getting so your it, it kind of mattered. Um, so when it came to my deck, what I would do essentially is, is I'd kind of look at the meta, and there's normally like three or four teams, right, in the meta right. that are really, really strong. So... I would place those four teams out on my table, and then I'd take the team that I was testing, the one I want to bring. Mm -hmm. And for my team, I would always roll for the full turn. Right. But for my opposing team, they would always have the perfect roll. So I would just set the dice for my opponent while I would roll for me. <laughs> and so if my right. opponent always has perfect rolls, can I still win? Right. And if my deck can still win against the team with perfect rolls, then I have a pretty good shot with that. Yeah. Question marks galore, yeah. right? <laughs> Did you have any? That's that's really cool. That's very, very practical. Did you have any other drills and stuff that you used? Or, or was was that the, the main and, and only way that you really kind of drilled into to getting ready for a tournament? Uh, that, well, there was a lot of memorization, too. So, okay, I'm fighting Super Rare Yanti, right? Right. This is the perfect Super Rare Yanti turn one. This is the perfect number two. This is the perfect number three. And then on my turn, it's like, okay, they have this. What's what's my counter? Uh, and I tried to memorize those two uh, against all the different meta teams. So for Yanti, I always buy this, this, and this. For other Rush aggro teams, like uh, X-Men teams or something, I'd buy this, this, and this. And, and so it's all about memorizing by order memorizing uh statistics mm -hmm. I, i'm very kind of math oriented so yeah it was all about uh figuring out the numbers what was the best win percentage so yeah i i don't know that i would have the self-control in order to just i've tried <laughs> rolling the dice and then setting my opponent's dice but then i'm always like on the turn where it really matters i'm all like oh well they wouldn't have rolled that realistically <laughs> like, let's just change that a after so much luck you know there's gotta balance things out a little bit and then i went and i'm like wow this team's great and then i go to the weekly tournament and get my <laughs> oh, i wonder why you know yeah i've noticed that too when i practiced with other people they're like oh well you you probably wouldn't have done that you know you wouldn't have rolled that or you wouldn't have bought that so i technically wouldn't have won well, in my mind i'm like well you lost yeah. So, 
right. maybe you need to get past that portion there and realize that you got to build your team so yeah. that it takes advantage of the other team's cards. <laughs> There's an old Irish proverb that says something to the effect of like grousing is the right of the loser. You know, <laughs> that's their inherent. That's the only thing they're entitled to. That's right. <laughs> um. Well, cool. that's cool. And, and, and when you brewed a team, what was your strategy in terms of brewing teams? Like, how did you sit down and evaluate cards? And you were one of the great creative brewers out there. I always had such a appreciation for the the decks that you showed up with. And I was curious, what, what what were you looking for when you set out to analyze cards at first and then brew your team? So a lot of I played almost control entirely the entire time I played. Um, I never really played aggro. I never played combo too much. It was always about control, and control is about having your opponent make mistakes not you Mm -hmm. so i would try and design teams that would be complicated and confusing to my opponent if that makes sense yeah so that they would make mistakes and then i could take advantage of them so something like oh i'm going back to you know old school things like blue eyes and uh, things Mm -hmm. like hulk where if they filled uh, guys, you just ping your uh, Hulk and it, it KOs everything. Stuff like that, where you'd have these aggro teams that would just buy tons and tons of guys. And as soon as they attacked, you, you'd kill them all so they wouldn't have an advantage there. I, <laughs> or if they tried to attack and, and do things, suddenly their, their guys were missing. Or they tried to play defensive, their things were missing. I would just try and analyze what the team were doing. Try and make my opponent to make decisions that they weren't prepared to make. Because when they're trying to think on the fly, then they're more likely to make a mistake. Yeah, it's true. I think Lasker used to say in chess, 40 good moves can be all be undone by one blunder, right? So, you know, Dice Masters can be that way too. That, that was my favorite thing about that Vibranium Shield team. I think you ran that a little bit, right, Arch? Yeah, I did. I, I had such an admiration for that team. It was such a great team. Why, why don't you talk to us a little bit about that team? It's such a cool team. Sure. So uh, that one... It revolved around Alfred, and it revolved around the Alfred that would come back to life after he was KO'd. Mm-hmm. And Vibranium Shield, where whenever one of your team members uh, was KO'd, all the rest of your team would come back plus two. So right. the idea was to take advantage of that by using uh, Batman. Batman, whenever one of your team members were KO'd, you could KO one of uh, your opponent's team members. So you would get Batman out, you would get Alfred out. You would use Magic Missile to KO Alfred. Suddenly your Batman and all your psychics and everything else are plus two defense stronger. (laughs) And you got to KO one of your opponent's team. So he has one less person on his team. Well, your Alfred comes back, you KO him again. He loses another (laughs) defensive guy. All your guys get another plus two. Maybe you have enough bolts to do that a third time. Suddenly you're sitting with a whole bunch of sidekicks and Batman that have really big butts. Right. You know, they're seven, eight health. And all you have to do is attack. <laughs> and you would use, uh, what's his name? The the flipper. It wasn't Cal Al. Cal Al, so that whatever one he didn't block, he'd get hit with eight or 10 damage or right. 20 damage if he could do it twice. So it was really fun. I really enjoyed that team. It really was. And there were the other thing that was really surprising, you were talking about surprising your opponents at that time. I remember people were really shocked, uh, myself included, that, you know, that vibranium shield, if you got two of them out, it stacked. So everybody who got, anytime you knocked anybody out, suddenly if you had two, it was plus four. Mm-hmm. 
to everybody, you know? So you, you got some huge butts really fast. It was actually really funny because people would be like, okay, I'll block this sidekick, right? <laughs> and so they would block yeah. him and not thinking I could also flip that sidekick. Yes, he has a seven butt now, yeah. but I'll flip him so he has, only has one defense now. Oh, no, you killed him. So now everybody that's uh, attacking you now does more damage too. So it's pretty fun. Right, right. Although it's definitely the type of team which uh, definitely sticks by the 100 hours rule because if you you go into a tournament with that type of team and you're just like, oh, I saw someone else do it and it worked, instead of catching your opponent in a blunder, you're likely to catch yourself in a blunder. It was a team that really took a lot of practice. And, you know, if you played it, it really made you a better player because you had to really think ahead because you had... It was like one of those things where once you really wanted it to go off because you had to fabricate sometimes, it was hard to get a sidekick sometimes in the use pile for Alfred to work. You had to kind of coordinate it really well and you had to think ahead. And it was a really, and sometimes if you used up all your fabricating, you were kind of done. So it, it was a really a Brewers and a great pilots team. I, I was really impressed with that the, team. The type of team where you know you're doing it right when it works like clockwork. And if you're playing it and you're saying, well, I mean, like, I guess it can work, but this is really janky. The problem's not with the team, probably with you, you know? <laughs> yeah. Story of my life. I'll put a link in the show notes to the team. If people want to try it, I recommend trying it if you want to get better. Just play it a few times because you really have to think ahead and it will make you a better pilot for sure. Uh, get used to doing math. And if you can break my record of having someone minus 184 life, then kudos to you. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, Mike, you might have noticed that in my past question, I used the past tense. And uh, hopefully this isn't too sensitive uh, territory to venture into. And if it is, just wave me off and we'll edit it out of the show. But at this point, it seems like you've stopped playing. Uh, Is there anything in particular that killed your mojo for the game? So I was really, really big in the end part of 2015, 2016, and 2017. I was uh, I played a ton. I, I went to every place I could go to. I really loved the game. The main thing I think that killed it for me was just the support stopped. I want to say that 2016 was perhaps the best year that WizKids supported the game. Mm-hmm. They had awesome prize support. You could if you won first place, you could get the full set of super rares, which was usually worth several hundred dollars at the time. In fact, that's a lot of reason why I could go on a trip. I went to in 2016, I went to Colorado, Washington, Nevada, Utah, all their WKOs in a large and that would take gas money, that would take sleeping in hotels. I could do that because I would sell the super rares to people afterwards. Right. In 2017, they stopped doing the price support as much. They kind of flipped it to just alternates of cards you already had. Super rares weren't worth as much. And and they didn't really change the price support that much out. So the WKOs you were winning in January were got, getting the same prizes as the ones in December that year. So right. uh, the value of the cards just wasn't there. And it became harder and harder for me to travel. There wasn't a lot of, they stopped giving out, uh, I can't even remember what they were called, but they would give little packets uh, to stores as prize support for doing tournaments in the stores. And those stopped coming out with any good cards. It used to be that going, getting those cards to help finish off your collection, you needed those cards. Those cards would win games for you. And they started being just reprints of cards that we already had uh, that weren't very good. So there wasn't very much incentive 
to go do all that participation in your local stores. Honestly, yeah. just the prize support became really bad, and there was, didn't seem to be much uh, carrying on, on rules or banning cards. Bard was really horrible during that time. <laughs> and yeah. by the time they banned him, it almost didn't matter. And then mm. Super Yanti came out and the cube came out and there was no banning or, or no talk about it. And I don't know that that basically killed it for me. Plus, if they could, I don't think they okay. ever hit when the product was supposed to come out. It was always late. And that just started getting yeah. really bad. Well, fair enough. I mean, those are we've heard other people have this, share the same concerns and issues, and 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 I get it, and, and uh, appreciate your your candor there. So, all right, let's let's get down to the second reason I summoned you guys to the nexus of all realities here. The main subject of this episode: toilet paper. And uh, <laughs> no, this isn't the long-awaited conclusion <laughs> to Chris Williams' personal plumbing saga, but a. <laughs> But a few weeks back, I was hard at work at being particularly unproductive and reading an article entitled What Everyone's Getting Wrong About the Toilet Paper Shortage by Will Ormius, or Ormus, I guess it is. In which, Ormais, I Ormais, think. Ormais, all right. I don't know. In which he ultimately argues that the toilet paper shortage problem is more about distribution than anything else. But before he gets to that conclusion, he brings up a bunch of the psychological rationales that people have been using to explain this irrational hoarding. Anyway, I thought the three of you guys would be excellent and would enjoy analyzing and digesting this heady material. So I'm going to just read a little bit from the uh, Will Ormius's or Ormus's or, World, or whatever his name is, his article, and then we can get into discussing some of these psychological underpinnings and how they relate to Dice Masters. So... Reading from the article, story after story explains the toilet paper outages as a sort of fluke of consumer irrationality. Unlike hand sanitizer, N95 masks, or hospital ventilators, they note toilet paper serves no special function in a pandemic. Toilet paper manufacturers are cranking out the same supply as always, and it's not like people are using the bathroom more often, right? U.S. Health Secretary Alex Azar summed up the paradox in a March 13th New York Times story, Toilet paper is not an effective way to prevent getting the coronavirus, but they're selling out. <laughs> the president of a paper manufacturer offered the consensus explanation, you are not using more of it, you are just filling up your closet with it. Faced with this mystifying phenomena, media outlets have turned to psychologists to explain why people are cramming their shelves with a household good that has nothing to do with the pandemic. Read the coverage and you'll encounter all sorts of fascinating concepts from zero risk bias to anticipatory anxiety. It's driven by fear and a herd mentality, the BBC scolded. The libertarian Mrs. Institute took the opportunity to blame anti-gouging laws. The Atlantic published a short documentary hearkening back to the great toilet paper scare of 1973, which was driven by misinformation. All right. So let's start with Lucan's first question to me when he read this. What does this have to do with Dice Masters? <laughs> Indeed, let's start with the first fascinating psychological concept he mentioned, zero risk bias. And it's basically when faced with an uncertain situation, people feel better if they can eliminate one risk. So have you guys seen this as, a, as an issue in Dice Masters? And if so, can, jump in. Sorry. I'll just, yeah, I could definitely speak to this. 
Uh, in fact, I think we, we were talking recently about a video I popped on our YouTube channel about steps I've been taking to try and become a better player. Right. Is that um, YouTube forward slash Ministry of Dice? <laughs> that's correct. Yeah, you'll find that at www.youtube.com forward slash the Ministry of Dice. Uh, like and subscribe while you're there, folks. No past um, energy. But... <laughs> Leave no a comment energy. and a notification Absolutely. bell. Yeah, <laughs> I'll just cut that out. Um, but the, what, one of the points in there I was talking about was about not sweating the small stuff, and this this was very much about this zero risk bias idea. So I will, or used to, I've tried to be getting better at it. I will rush to the control piece straight out the gate that eliminates a risk I see on the other side of the table. And I think the example I used in the video was to talk about the fact that I will ramp up to five and buy a bishop and get it out in the field because I'm looking at a direct damage team on the other side of the table. Right. However, while, while that has immediately eliminated that risk and that kind of one mini action I've taken has, has, has made me feel a bit better <laughs> right. because I've created a zero, a zero risk from that direct damage, what it's not done is it's not given me a route to win the game. Right. And it's created a situation where my opponent can just then sort of chess around my bishop, right. which they've probably prepared for anyway. And then we reach a point within the match mid-game where I'm like, well, I've got nothing going on. I'm just re-rolling Bishop in every time after you've killed him, <laughs> but you're hammering me for five a turn, right. well, you know. And so that immediate instinct to try and eliminate that risk has overwhelmed me early doors right. to my detriment. And it also set up something we want to talk about later in the episode, and that is it's created a distribution problem for you, right? Because now you no longer have the dice you need to win in your rotation, right? So let's let's keep well, that in mind when we get to that in mind. This is actually interesting because on the on my SAT there was. A passage on this, and I can't really quote because it's on SAT, how do you find these things after you've already taken it? So I'll just try to remember to the best of my recollection. But there's a, a thing in there that said people care a lot more about the difference between 10% and 0% than they care about the difference between 50% and 40%. And I think in Dice Masters, that is a source of a lot of errors. Obviously, it's a dice game. Even if you go for the bishop to make sure that they have a 0% chance of being able to use direct damage on you, you still have a 25% chance of not being able to roll it. So it's not really zero risk, is it? Right? But people yeah, generally tend to stray away from things which only minorly affect your opponent in a, in a large way that are generally cheaper. Those things representing the things closer from 50% to 40%. And they're just often really irritating to deal with and underused in metas just because they don't give you that same blast of confidence that things like blob or bishop things like those control pieces can give you can you guys think of any cards that you saw when you sit down at the table and you looked across and you saw some cards on the other team that would create this panic that would lead to some zero risk bias on your part what is it that you saw on the other side that would make you reach for something that perhaps you ought not to have I've, I've never just... panicked. You've over panicked? What, what is it that makes you over panic, Andy? Oh, no, no, I never panic. <laughs> <laughs> There's that. Uh, who, who was your guy from your crew there, Mike, uh, with the unlimited confidence? Oh, that was JT. Yeah, JT. Well, he's, he's clearly met his match here with Mr. England. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say that for me, there's, there's times where you jump into, like, for example, Green Devil Mask. Oh my God, there's Green Devil Mask. That could wreck my team. And people sometimes went way out of their way wanting to completely shut that off when maybe the best way was just to play through well, it. I, I think a lot of times um, that happened too with like Dwarf Wizard and Shriek, right? Right. Oh no, they have this blinker on their team. How, yeah. how do I handle that? And 
actually people would get so focused on that oh we can't win because they're going to just blank my cards it, it was particularly bad during that period of time when you could have both on your team when you could have both dwarf wizards because right. everyone's like oh no they can blink <laughs> two cards what are they going to do uh not realizing that you could actually use that as an advantage oh they're going to buy these two extremely weak dice right that yes can blank my cards but as long as you play a deck that can mitigate that i mean you've got what magic missile can just ping off uh shriek very easy or i know super rare yanti right. everyone hates that word but she could just murder a shriek <laughs> or a dwarf wizard with no problem or the four cost shriek could blank them both simultaneously yeah. right she most certainly can arch yeah mm, yeah she can't do a lot against the batarang either my man <laughs> Well said, well said. But uh, anyway, yeah, definitely cards like that where people just panic about them. Oh, they're they're broken. But Dice Masters was so beautiful in how many ways you could counter that kind of stuff if you just sat back and thought about it a little bit. Mm -hmm. I I think the thing with cards of that nature is that, uh, and if we're talking about biases, this isn't so much about zero risk bias as it is about kind of negativity bias Mm -hmm. in that uh, people will have this this kind of nightmare recollection of that one time a shriek blanked their thing and it caused them a nightmare or that one time a green devil mask went off and it cleared their field and caused havoc or that one time a dwarf wizard sat there the entire game being a pest yeah and so what what tends to happen is uh, this i can't speak worldwide but this is certainly a very british phenomenon is we love to get bogged down in the negative remembering that one time that something really screwed us over and so it's less about the zero risk bias sometimes with cards like that it's about the negativity bias right that we, this flashback from days gone by of that shriek yeah well i mean i can't really talk about shriek rationally we all know that but, <laughs> um, right but we've all had that one game where a shriek hit the field and it freaked our whole plans out for sure that you know this segues very nicely into one of the other concepts that the original article was talking about and that was the herd mentality and he he linked to a link that brought up another article and herd mentality is the, the tendency for people's behavior to conform to those of the group to which they belong, right? That's from the Oxford Dictionary, right? And the link on the article took us to another article called Why People Are Stockpiling Toilet Paper. And quoting from the article, let me just read this really quick, and I think because this ties into your point, Chris. Consumer psychology experts say the behavior is obviously irrational and a clear example of herd mentality whipped up by social media and news coverage. The pictures of bare aisles haven't helped, right? What you've got to remember is that when 50 packs of toilet paper rolls disappear off shelves, you really notice it because they take up so much room, says Professor Deborah Grace from Griffith University. It's much more noticeable than, say, 50 cans of baked beans or hand sanitizer disappearing. So, like, I think that green devil mask or the shriek one is a great example because when when sh- when that devil mask hits, and you, we've all been there, when it just completely wipes your board, the odds of that happening aren't great. But when it happens, it makes such an impression that then you shift back to having this whole I, this is a zero risk bias. You know, like I'm never going to let that happen again, right? Or, or like, there's also like a common <laughs> interpretation of Green Devil Mask, where it's oh well, if I'm playing against Green Devil Mask, if I'm worried about this, I have to make sure that my team can run on only three active characters because if that thing ever hits, there's zero percent chance that I reroll anything. It just gets rid of all your stuff when you have more than four. For a long time, that's how I thought about Green Devil Mask, and when I was building teams, I was always thinking I either have to be able to operate on three characters or I have to be able to just hard stop Green Devil Mask me. I have to have Scarlet Witch and I have to have Blob, right? <laughs> or also another yeah. example would be when, when when Shriek, or 
I'll, I guess I can say when Shriek was really popular because she's no longer legal. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but so back when that was really popular, people just started spouting online like, oh, yeah, like you basically have nine team slots now because one's always going to be Shriek. It's just a necessity. You don't even need to need it for anything. You just need to need it for their Shriek, which is honestly dull, but also grossly untrue in my opinion, you know? Right. Like there are many ways to make a good team work without Shriek. Can you guys think of something like this where a disproportionate effect can cause you to start playing the game irrationally or, or, or even poorly? Well, I got one that's pretty old school, but I used to do it a lot. Mm-hmm. There used to be the combo of Professor X Global with Oracle, right. and it would absolutely drive my opponents insane. Yeah. Um, so so you bring <laughs> Professor X because uh, everyone knows that Global is just broken, and you're able to ramp like crazy. But then you also bring Oracle to prevent your opponent from being able to do that. And it's that kind of rationality where your opponent basically rages and and loses the game themselves because they just (laughs) look at something like that and they no longer realize that they can beat this combo very easy on their side. They have all the tools, but they're thinking about the negativity and they're going to complain about it. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, back when I used to play chess, when I played black, there was two openings I would use depending on what my opponent did, either the French defense or or the marshal. And there was one tournament that I was in and he opened with the queen's gambit and I counter opened with the marshal and he just resigned. He's like, I can't, I, I can't do this one. I hate it. I hate it. You win. I don't care. I don't care if there's money on the line. Whatever. I'm resigning. I'd rather lose than have to play this right, game. Right. We um, as as human beings just to open the window a little bit and to talk from my experience, my professional experience. I worked a number of years ago with a sports psychologist called Dr. Steve Peters, and he used to talk about this idea called the chimp paradox. Mm-hmm. And he used to say that the human brain is a computer and there's there's two individuals within the human brain who are always in a battle to take control of that computer. You've got your chimp, right. which represents your irrational behavior, your emotional responses, your unhelpful psychological thinking. And then you've got the human being who is the rational, logical person who processes it. But their scientific studies by plugging heads into machines and watching lights flashing and whatnot <laughs> demonstrate that the chimp is five times stronger than yeah. the human being. So our immediate reaction is to allow the irrational right. emotional response to what we're looking at take control first right and so when when these negative feelings about cards across the table are there and you're going i hate that card mm-hmm. i absolutely andy's playing elf thief again <laughs> i hate the elf thief <laughs> right <laughs> you know it starts to it starts to take control and that's when you do see kind of salty strops and as lucan describes people going i can't go that's it i'm done right <laughs> you know flipping the table yeah and which brings us back to what mike was talking about earlier you know especially in the higher levels of the game just like chess it's it's really about which player makes the first mistake or or the first misplay can can be the difference in the game more often than not and if you get tilted or the chimp brain takes over there's a better chance for that happening right so or like especially if you just get a bad roll there's a bit of a, a an, an ideology out there where like there's no such thing as as bad roles because like of the team you brought or something. Absolutely, roles definitely factor into this. But also, if you let a role stop you from winning a game because of like the headspace that put you in, that's kind of your fault because at the top level, everybody's a role away from each other. You know, right. Let's move on to one of the last psychological interesting bits from this article, and that was the concept of anticipatory anxiety. 
And that's where a person experiences increased levels of anxiety by thinking about an event or situation in the future. It's the fear and dread you experience before the event. It's what's at play when you spend weeks dreading the results of a medical appointment, yet the news is usually mild and manageable. Can you guys think of times where anticipatory anxiety is a thing in our game? The night before is really, really bad for me. I don't think I've ever gone to a tournament where I've slept the night before. I'm usually in my yeah. hotel room or or doing something just practicing and practicing because uh, I know if I don't do that, I'm just in my bed with my eyes shut still practicing <laughs> in my mind. So I don't think I've right. ever been to a tournament where I'm not half exhausted <laughs> thanks to this. Right. <laughs> right. Did that usually happens to me as a result of my alcohol intake. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I I used to get like proper shakes at the beginning of a tournament when I first because I hadn't done anything competitive since like being at school, right? And like ten fifteen years down the line, and we decided to go to the Dice Masters Nats two thousand sixteen, and I remember sitting down in front of Mister Williams, um, and then <laughs> just having like the proper shakes right. in my hand, and I've, I've not no idea like like what what's going on, and. Um, <laughs> And then we drew. Yeah, and then he soon realised I was a full player, <laughs> yeah. and um, it was all going to be all right. Yeah, it was all right. Forward. But yeah, and I had that for a while, like for like even like local tournaments, right. up until I won the uh, the national championship, um, and then it was it was easy. Uh, but up until that point, like proper, like um, very nervous, and and but not not particularly thinking about it, but more physically. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Now, did 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 you find that you were playing more poorly when you were experiencing this anticipatory anxiety? And what strategies did you use to cope with it? Nah, I, I, I played well. I think I drank a two liter of uh, Mountain Dew before the start of the <laughs> tournament. <laughs> yeah, did it. And <laughs> en- energy drinks. I'll tell you what anticipatory anxiety does to me, which cannot be fixed by any amount of energy drinks. The night before, I, I'm like stressed, and I'm like, but what if they bring this? And then I change out that one card yeah. on my team, and it screws me over. Yeah. There's and it's and I have a principle that I always like to say that I abide by where I'm like, whatever it is two days before, I'm not changing it after two days before the event. But of course, I always change it the day before the event because that's just how this works, yeah, yeah. you know. Changing your teams at the last minute, I think, is a common mistake. We've all done that. Yeah, yeah. it's a pitfall, man. If you haven't practiced with that card, you're going to make a mistake. It's guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about some cards that might fit into kind of a combination of herd mentality and anticipatory anxiety. Remember back in when World of Light came out, Mike, and uh, people were really, really worried about fatality bounty hunter you know i mean people were talking about that as like the next lantern ring or something and it turned out to be nothing but at the time people were really just the whole scene was a flutter about yeah it's quite hilarious i actually uh loved what would happen so there'd be a big wko or a big tournament somewhere and then two weeks later there's the next wko because they used to do it where every three months you'd have a bunch of wkos It'd be really nice. Right. But everyone would go to the internet, look at the team that won, not looking at teams two through eight. What is the team that won? Right. And then you'd go to the next WKO and everyone has that team. And that is, (laughs) you know, oh, everyone just wants to win. They're they're all looking at that herd mentality. They think, oh, because I have the same team as this guy Mm. used, I'm going to win. And you'd have all these people with that team that would just lose. 
not knowing right. how to pilot it, not knowing <laughs> that, hey, maybe that guy was lucky that time. Right. Or team two or team three just had terrible yeah. luck, right? <laughs> yeah. That's a great point Mike makes there, actually, because I came to that realization some time ago because you're right, while while a team might come in at position one, people aren't looking at the, the depth of the field and saying, well, there's 32 participants there and position 32 played more or less the same team as position one. Right. But we're also focused on position one. And, th- and this is, and again, apologies to any listeners to this who heard me talk about this on the Ministry of Dice, but this is where I think sometimes you've got to make a decision to say, what am I strong at? Where are my strong suits? Mm-hmm. What type of play suits me well? And what ca- do I have the capacity to win with? Not what other people have the capacity to win with, <laughs> because clearly people have the capacity to lose with that too. It's it's about leaning into my strengths, leaning into my best thought processes, leaning into the style of play that I can be the best me in Dice Masters at. Yeah. Um, but no, people will just... this. There is a net deck cap, it definitely, around uh, Dice Masters. I, and it's definitely um, not an antiquated issue, right? Because even just a couple of years ago, 2018 Worlds and 2018 Nats for America and, well, I guess the world for Worlds. But in the UK Nationals, which had happened like a month before Worlds, maybe a little bit less than that, you know, you had a Michael Powers team, which won, and it became like the focus of everybody because it was like UNT is still the king even after uh, Cosmic Cube's been um, knocked out of Modern. But just a few spots down, you've got Chris with the Batarang, and we were like, well, I mean, Doing. it's it's four, but it... It's fourth place, but I mean that looks like it. It could be a, a really good idea. Third, yeah. third place. Luke. Oh, third place. Uh, well, sorry, my my apologies. Um, but anyway, so I mean, you can see how the mistake would happen. No, of course not. Anyway, so the, we we were like, well, well, we'll just take that and we'll try that. And then as soon as and it was still on nobody's radar, nobody was even thinking about it, at least in America. Then when we both did really well with it, although I wasn't using it at Worlds when I did well, but my dad did really well with it at Worlds, then all of a sudden yeah. it's on the radar. That card the, saved my The difference boy. between number two and number one is just that, that big shirt. for cards, you, you know? know? And I was thinking yeah. back to even something else with anticipatory anxiety. Remember Ultraman? Before 2017 Worlds, there was such herd mentality and anticipatory anxiety about Ultraman because of the PDCs. And it was so much so that barely any Ultraman teams showed up for U.S. Nationals and Worlds that year, which I think surprised a lot of people. Anybody else remember that? I was too busy counting shields. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I remember it well. Well, that was the team, Andy, that you took UK Nats with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At, at the time, everyone was, um, well, Bard had been banned, but no other card had. Right. And it was Mask Ring or Beholder. And uh, I mean, we sat down, we did a lot of playtesting and I knew it back to front. And it was it was the one thing that, that people hadn't thought of. Right. Or hadn't thought that they were going to take it or anyone who'd brought the, um, what was the card that counted it? Oh, oh there was, it was too big to fly uh, and there was a three cost. The one with four cost steel on it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was it was before too big to fly. It was the um, the the basic action that cleared everything. Oh, uh, the six cost. End of days. Yeah. That's it, what it's called. End of days. Yeah. yeah that mm-hmm. fired it off. Um, and I suppose I got a bit lucky because I didn't come against it. I came against a guy with Too Big to Fly. But yeah, I know that team very well. Yeah, it was interesting because at the tournament, everybody was running Too Big to Fly on a team where Too Big to Fly really didn't help their team other than it stopped a potential Ultraman team that didn't even show up. So We, we <laughs> actually the most had part, a really you know? similar phenomenon this past Worlds 
with everybody was afraid of Iceman, and you had that uncommon Nova Corps uniform, which was a pretty solid counter to it. Yeah. Uh, and everybody on the days before were just sticking that card on every one of their teams and playing it in the tournaments to make everybody think like, hey, this is going to be important. And then on the day of, nobody ran Iceman, uh, and also nobody ran Nova Corps uniform. Not not that many people ran Nova Corps uniform because they didn't want to waste a slot teching for something that they had been pretending that was going to be an important piece of tech the next day so that nobody would bring the thing they didn't want to see so that then they would not have to use a Nova Corps uniform. Right. And then nobody ended up bringing Nova Corps u- uniform or Iceman, but all the Iceman teams uh, actually ended up doing well. This is perfect because this brings us to, and you're never going to figure out why until I get there, but it brings us to the great toilet paper scare of 1973. Perfect segue. <laughs> All right, I so, watched that Johnny Carson YouTube video you forwarded It's interesting, to isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the, the, well, kind of. The, I was struggling to make the connection. Well, if I'm being... well here, here goes. Here, I'm, <laughs> well, I mean, to be I, honest, I think that this is taking ourselves a bit too seriously. I mean, we're, we're, we're Dice Masters channel. Yeah, I'm, Dice I'm gonna, Masters but we're going to connect podcast, the dots. You know? here, here, we're going we're gonna to bring all our heady minds together and connect the dots. All right. So the original article linked to a post in Priceonomics written by Zachary Crockett. And I'll pick up in the middle of the article. It says, like most scares, the toilet paper fiasco all started with an unsubstantiated rumor. In November of 1973, several news agencies reported a tissue shortage in Japan. Initially, the release went unnoticed and nobody seemed to put much stock in it, save for one Harold V. Froelich. Froelich, a 41-year-old Republican congressman presided over a heavily forested district in Wisconsin and had recently been receiving complaints from constituents about a reduced stream of pulp paper. On November 16th, he released his own press statement. The government printing office is facing a serious shortage of paper. Too little fanfare. However, a few weeks later, Froelich uncovered a document that indicated the government's National Buying Center had fallen far short of securing bids to provide toilet paper for its troops and bureaucrats. On December 11th, he issued another, more serious press release. The U.S. may face a serious shortage of toilet paper within a few months. We hope we don't have to ration toilet tissue A toilet paper shortage is no laughing matter. It is a problem that will potentially touch every American. Now, in the climate of shortages of 1973, right, oil scares and economic duress, Froelich's claim was absorbed without an iota of doubt, and the media ran wild with it. Wire services, radio hosts, and international correspondents all sensationalized the story. Words like may and potentially were lost in translation, and the shortage was reported as a doomed truth. The ground had been set for a consumer panic. All it needed was a spark to ignite it. When Johnny Carson cracked a joke about toilet paper on his television talk show, things got serious. You know, we've got all sorts of shortages these days, he told 20 million viewers. But have you heard the latest? I'm not kidding. I saw it in the papers. There's a shortage of toilet paper. Absolute madness ensued. Millions of Americans swarmed grocery outlets and hoarded all the toilet paper they could get their hands on. I heard it on the news, so I bought 15 extra rolls, one customer told the New York Times. Company officers and industry leaders told the public to remain calm. Store owners ordered astronomical quantities of toilet paper and set limits of two rolls per customer. Nobody seemed to play by the rules. All right. So it seems to me that all of this kind of reminds me a little bit of at last year's world, Ben Said Scott loudly proclaimed the counters to Iceman before last year's worlds, right? 
And then he even played Iceman in the 10 by 10 of it in the hopes of getting people to either not play Iceman themselves or to expose how these hard counters like Lucan's uncommon Novacore uniform could hurt it. Well, the it hope- wasn't my idea, so if you wanted to make it mine, you'd have to say Novacore Unicorn, or Nova Unicorn, <laughs> or whatever it was. Anyway, <laughs> but, 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 but before the tournament, Ben was talking loudly, kind of like Froelich was, about, hey, there's this Iceman, we can stop it with this, because I think he knew that he didn't want to play Iceman on the actual day of the event. And sure enough, it may have worked out. Any thoughts on that? Well, you'd have to ask him that. I mean, does Ben say anything quietly, I suppose, would be my first point. Um, Love you, Ben. Uh, Secondly, isn't it always a Midwestern congressman at the heart of all these things? eh? Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, uh, this is a phenomenon we've seen in Dice Masters all the time. I think the problem is, is that we have actually had a few cards that have come along uh, where the hype was to be believed. Mm -hmm. That means that you can't discount or discredit any hype around another card because we've seen it happen before. And by that, I mean, you know, all the hype around Bard and then, well, do you know what? That was a pretty, (laughs) you know, dominating piece of meta. Right. You anti, same again, a very dominating piece of meta. So when you get other meta pieces, certainly in current contemporary Dice Masters, when people start talking Iceman, when people start talking Becky Lynch, it's hard to discount that because we have actually seen one or two situations where it has come to fruition as predicted, you know, yeah, which I'm- then creates that that rush the herd mentality anticipatory anxiety is a phenomenon yeah i mean it seems like right now the card that is kind of occupying there's a couple cards that's kind of occupying that spot where we don't know if they are worth all the anxiety and the herd mentality going on or if they're not like i think god catcher is one of them and and yawning portal probably is the other one there's a lot basically of the on things on the ban list yeah. for yeah. the uh, one big weekend online ctc's coronavirus constellations well you you uh, Arj, you've been in on, on the discussions that we've been having around you know, making the decision to ban those cards. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually, right now, I'm not fully convinced. I think this may be a herd mentality rush towards yeah. a couple of pieces that actually, on paper, look pretty horrifying. But when you when you start really engaging with them and playing against them, aren't quite as nasty as, yeah. as you might yeah. actually think. It's, it, it's interesting. I, I mean, I'm willing to be proven to wrong, and, and that may be the case, but... It's interesting you say that, Chris, because it, I think herd mentality actually influenced my decision to put them on the ban list because my thought was I want more people playing and more people comfortable playing. So I was kind of looking at the survey, judging the herd mentality, thinking like, what's going to keep people from wanting to register? You know, not necessarily what really is actually a terrifying threat, but what's going to, you know, be the psychological perspective that would keep people from yeah. joining the game, you know? And, and I think you're right, too. What, what, what this leads to is perhaps a question around creativity in the game. You know, the, the band that we've chosen to put into play for the One Big Weekend Online is actually more about encouraging creativity and perhaps giving what, what's perceived to be the tier 1.5 right. uh, a little bit more time at the top and to make the range of teams wider right. because the herd mentality is possibly going to produce, you know, we've seen it with the two-team takedown right now, is going to produce a situation where, uh, <laughs> you know, it's Becky mania, Godcatcher mania. Right. Uh, however... So you've got that kind of question of do bands of this nature or trying to stray away from the herd mentality? Just because you don't like the attack step, mate. <laughs> you have to ruin it for else. You know, I, I was worried about that in terms of the game is shifting towards combat damage a little bit here, and, and that's probably a good thing. And I didn't want to like just 
create a situation where direct damage just runs right back to the forefront again. Uh, and hopefully that won't be the case, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Well, I do want to let more, more creativity in the meta for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of direct damage coming up. I mean, mm-hmm. if you take a closer look at the Infinity Gauntlet win conditions and, and some of the Dark Phoenix Saga win conditions that are coming down the pipeline, yeah. uh, th- there is actually a lot of direct damage strategies to, to satisfy the player like me who, who enjoys playing that way. Uh, and he's not wrong. I, I think the attack step is is a dark, horrible place <laughs> for for a lot of people, um, including me. And but I actually, I think Becky Lynch. We we may be rushing to judgment on that one. And while she is, in, she is powerful. I'm not gonna uh, please, don't misinterpret me. I'm not saying she's not a strong card, but I think we may be overvaluing the strength. The same again with the Godcatcher. And, you know, if Ben Said Scott was here, he would loudly proclaim that stats aren't all that. Right. <laughs> all right. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I, I think in the next few months here, with the next couple sets, we might be approaching the promised land. Dare, dare I use the word balanced? <laughs> I don't know. We'll find some, out. Some have spoken of it with all stars right. in their eyes. Well, let's, let's put a close to this, this toilet paper discussion. Let's bring us back to the main thread of Will Ormius's or Will Oramus's what everyone's getting wrong about the toilet paper shortage article. And, you know, after covering the above psychological theories for what appears to be the case of hoarding, he states, there's another entirely logical explanation for why stores have run out of toilet paper, one that has gone oddly overlooked in the vast majority of media coverage. It has nothing to do with psychology and everything to do with supply chains. It helps to explain why stores are still having trouble keeping it in stock, weeks after they started limiting how many a customer could purchase. In short, the toilet paper industry is split into two largely separate markets, commercial and consumer. The pandemic has shifted the lion's share of demand to the latter. People actually do need to buy significantly more toilet paper during the pandemic, not because they're making more trips to the bathroom, but because they're making more of them at home. With some 75% of the U.S. population under stay-at-home orders, Americans are no longer using the restrooms at their workplace, in schools, at restaurants, at hotels, or in airports. So why haven't we just sent that toilet paper to Safeway or CVS? That's where supply chains and distribution channels come in. Not only is it not the same product, but it often doesn't come from the same mills. Talk to anyone in the industry and they'll tell you the toilet paper made for the commercial market is a fundamentally different product from the toilet paper you buy in the store. It comes in huge rolls, too big to fit in most home dispensers. It comes individually wrapped and is shipped on huge pallets rather than in brightly branded packs of 6 or 12. In theory, some of the mills that make commercial toilet paper could try to redirect some of that supply to the consumer market. People desperate for toilet paper probably wouldn't turn up their noses at it, but the industry just can't flip a switch, right? And that's where, you know, I think we were talking about Dice Masters sometimes. You started off on one course of action, bought a bunch of dice, and then suddenly your opponent throws a nasty wrench in the works, and you've got to procure a whole new set of different dice into your supply line, and it's hard in the middle of the game. Can you guys think of any time where you've had to make this hard switch and, and you've had a hard time getting the, the new distribution of dice into circulation. To, well, to be clear, uh, uh, go on, Andy, sorry. I was going to say, is you've got to have that option, haven't you? Yeah. Well, uh, if, you, if, you, if you can't get your toilet roll from your 
commercial end, your staff. I think uh, <laughs> just just steal it from the local bus station. Apparently, is the <laughs> is the way to go. So how do you nick it in dice? Well, I mean, look, I'm telling you, it's it's a real problem. When we got to take all our books out of school, they had locked up all of that industrial toilet paper. We couldn't get any of it. It was locked inside that cabinet. And I was like, well, what are you going to do with it? Nobody's going to be here for months. <laughs> so what are what are the what are the distribution issues you've had in games playing playing dice masters? Can you think of any time where you've been like, oh, I've, I've got I built this whole thing and suddenly somebody locked me down and I got to completely reinvent my strategy in the middle of the game? And how did how did you make it work? Oof. That's uh, <laughs> I, I would probably refer back to the collector team mm-hmm. as a great example of this, whereby it it, it gives you all the tools on the table beyond the limits of your own map right? so that you can redirect. Um, I can think of an example where I was playing a game not too long back where I was facing a venerable Dreadnought-focused team. And so I just started keeping a shield and one other energy back and just pivoted to their venerable Dreadnought. <laughs> right. You know, And I think that's the thing about control. If you're talking about control as one of the kind of zero-risk bias players kind of uh, preferences yeah is that the key is transforming your control into something lethal yeah uh, that's why bard was so horrible you know because you could put get your elf thief out get your oracle out you know put your control pieces out and then drop a bard in the field and turn them all into an offensive right horde same again with things like team up you know <laughs> right hey mike um, i know you were a bard player back in u.s nats in 2016 any any thoughts you on that? weren't were you mike uh, you know, <laughs> no shame. That he, he made the team mate it's all right <laughs> yeah for the nationals <laughs> any thoughts on that in, in those days i mean that was just kind of a pedal the metal team and, and you just tried to outrace your opponent right for the most part or what, what do you think uh, for the most part yeah i always played uh, bard control of course but mm-hmm. um i never just left it to that so Back in the glory days, I, there's two of my favorite pieces. So I'd have nine cards just dedicated to that bard control. You get your oracle, you get your elf thief, you get your dwarf wizard on there, and then you bard and, and you roll to victory. But if for whatever reason you couldn't get that to work, I always stuck either a hulk or a nova as my 10th slot. Because if everything was right. locked down, then I could always rely on hulk to just attack with the big eight face and then usually mm-hmm. not being able to do anything about it besides losing a guy. Or uh, Nova, just attack every turn, and you're doing two to four damage just because they had to block Nova, and they take damage to themselves. Right. So, Did you ever find yourself in game where you had to make that, quote, distribution ch- switch, where suddenly you're like, oh, my God, my bar is shut down. Somehow I'm going to switch to Nova. And, and how did you make that work at the time? How did you come to the realization and enact a plan to change what in effect is a toilet paper factory that used to deliver product to the schools into one that now delivers into the home market. Oh, absolutely. I think it was actually, um, I want to say it was the quarterfinals in that U.S. Nationals Mm -hmm. where I hadn't buttoned my Hulk that entire national. So I was kind of shooting myself in the foot going, why did I even bring this card? I've never had to use it. Bards won me the whole day. And sure enough, there goes the quarterfinals. And he had a dwarf wizard on my bard, and he had a, he was pinging off my dwarf wizard every time it came to the field. I couldn't roll it on the right side, and we were just in the stalemate, and it looked like he was going to win. And so I just made the bet. I spent the six energy instead of trying to buy a second bard or something like that. I spent it on that Hulk, and sure enough, when it came right. out, hey, you've got my uh, bard blank, but now your entire team is dead. What are you going to do? That's awesome. So you had prepared for the <laughs> pandemic, Mike. I love it. <laughs> All right. 
Well, I mean, like these days with Yawning Portal, I think, and 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 Osaka and all these really great ramp and economy pieces, there's like a whole different aspect to this two different markets and like trying to switch it around. A lot of these teams out there these days. They have the plan, but it requires absolutely for Yawning Portal to roll and all of the pieces that that make consistency happen. Those also all have to roll. It all has to roll at the same time. And if it works, great. You just got a turn four almost guaranteed on your hands. But if it doesn't work, people are always like, well, that didn't go as I planned at all. I mean, I just there's no chance for me. And then the same thing happens to their opponent. And so I think uh, the whole other aspect to this is that people need to start thinking about all the different markets and routes that they're going to have to deal with, especially with all these new things that put things straight into the bag, take things out of the bag, just these whole bag bag. or flood opponents' bags with like Gazer and stuff. The bag shenanigans have never been more real, Mm -hmm. right? And getting the distribution right is is critical. I think you're right there. As as true Mr. Six would say, I'm hearing Kingpin slamming his cane (laughs) down now. And hark, I hear the hallowed horn. It's Hall of Fame time. Each week, we ask our guest or guests to nominate one retired or semi-retired player to our illustrious yet imaginary Dice Masters Hall of Fame. If you're curious at home and would like to find out more about the criteria, you can visit the hall at rollandthunder.xyz forward slash HOF for Hall of Fame, and we promise not to make you exit through the gift shop. So let's start with you, Mike. Do you have anyone you'd like to nominate for our imaginary Dice Masters Hall of Fame? Uh, app. Hi, Mike. <laughs> oh, hi. Are you trying to say something there? <laughs> no. Uh, what, what do you want? What do you guys hold on before we start? What do you guys want to bet that Andy's going to try and nominate himself? <laughs> don't, know, don't know what you mean. <laughs> well, we're going to start oh, with no, Mike. Mike. We're going to hold. Right. We're going to tease that. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. I have someone in mind. I would love to nominate Michaela Kuba. always kind of an inspiration to me she would uh, go to several events i went to and she was a, a great control player on and off the field but mostly she kind of stepped up when the reserve pool kind of split and everyone went their separate ways she stepped up and she's one of the main reasons why the dice coalition even exists and some of the tools that we all love there i think the team builder that is on Dice Coalition is still one of the most number one used apps for any Dice Master player anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think without her, that would have been lost. So I'd love to nominate her. I agree. Fantastic nomination. You know, also a member of the reserve pool like yourself and just a great player, overall contributor to the community. Yeah, also I- something that we should probably mention if you've seen the tag around and wondered who that is Mike Plum is Whisperini. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. <laughs> they yes. are one and the same. But back to Michaela. Awesome nomination. She's in the books. All right, so let's move down the line here. We're going we're gonna to save Andy for the last. We're going to tease this out a little bit. So, Chris, do you have. <laughs> A nomination for for our, our Hall of Fame. Yeah, I do. Well, <laughs> while we're talking about uh, ex reserve pool members, I'd like to put RJ Retro on the list, please. Awesome, right on the voice, the radio voice himself. That's great. Yeah, he... what? <laughs> <laughs> it's retired or semi-retired. Retired. Yeah, Andy. we don't I'm want sorry, to put the nail in your coffin, Mister England. Come on. <laughs> 
RJ Retro is a great nomination. No, he's Good, not. You know, one of the original guys from the reserve pool back in the day. And, you know, and, yeah. and, and as a fellow podcaster, it's nice to, to give a little love to the former podcasters out there, right? Well, his, his radio voice aside, which was immense, like we, we can't deny that, but it was amazing. Um, yeah. It was amazing. RJ Retro. <laughs> yeah, what a guy. But um, actually, RJ had a big part to play in my interest in the game because he, somewhat like me, I like to think, evangelized the more casual side of playing Dice Masters yeah. and kind of represented you know, people playing on a budget or people interested. In, you know, he was a, a big driving force behind the Little Cup idea. Yep. He used to do segments about playing budget teams. If you haven't got a super rare... Constantine, what's a good way of having that game effect in your team when you're playing down your local store? Yeah. And I, I think the casual way of playing is often overlooked, and he was he was a big proponent of, of playing the game in a more casual way. I completely agree, and especially in these times where we're looking to have a little bit more fun with things, I think RJ's attitude is is right on target. That's that's a, that's a cool nomination. All right, we're, we're here to our 2017 UK national champion, Andy. Who would you like to nominate for the hall? It was it was hard to make the decision, and I had to think long and hard. This this was someone who who some might say peaked back in about May the seventh, two thousand seventeen. Okay, but now, now be careful now. You don't want to drive yourself into retirement. You know, so, some may say that his best years behind him. Some would say that. Yes, some would say. I seem to. I, I feel that there's maybe a recurrence or a resurgence of of, of power that may come back, but you know we will see. <laughs> but if if he comes back, he can't be in the hall. You see, <laughs> he's not back yet. That's yeah, he'll never get saying. elected if he ever comes back. <laughs> if, if the power is ever vested in us, if it if it ever happens, and 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 that's uh, the the one and, and only Andy. <laughs> You're right, Luke, and he did it. He I did should have, I should have right, had, before right. you guys rolled on, I should have waited for somebody to put money on the line. That way I could have All right, we're, we're, we, we, we will accept the nomination, but we, it's got to have an asterisk by it because we're going to keep an eye on your your playing here, you know. <laughs> well, here's the thing. By the rules of the game, if he's officially semi-retired while he's here, he just, before he came on, he said, I'm now semi-retired. Boom, he's on. Now he's semi-retired. He can nominate himself. And then if every person who comes after him also decides it's a good idea to nominate him just for, like, the joke aspect. or <laughs> that, because, that sounds amazing. You know, That's a brilliant idea. You know, that might happen. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past the Dice Masters community <laughs> at all, right? Then if, if he had more than anybody else, our hands would be bound and we would have to induct him into the hall. Well, yeah, I know. I'm putting... I, I, maybe. <laughs> Even if he was still playing at that point. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of uh, I, I'm kind of putting the asterisk here because it's kind of like a surgery. One ought not, you know, perform surgery on themselves. <laughs> yeah. so, so it's a win-win, isn't How can you not be nominating my care? Seriously. <laughs> it's, well... I either do really well, in which case I'm doing really well, <laughs> or I do really badly, and I get into the Hall of Fame. That's true. <laughs> That's true. All right. Well, well, we can't argue with your logic. <laughs> <laughs> we'll accept that logic, I guess. All right. So that concludes <laughs> our Hall of Fame, folks. And that pretty much concludes the episode here. If you guys have anything else that you want to shout out to the world while we have you here, and while everyone is proverbially locked down. I've always been a big admirer of Mike Plum. Well, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. I don't know what to say. <laughs> he has, Mike. He has. Oh, he has. He has. This is. He's been. No, sincere. no. I. 
I appreciate that. I just, uh, I, you know, I'm getting embarrassed by it. (laughs) If it's still out there and there's, there's an article called how to win a WKO written by Mike Plummer. I don't know if it's, it's still out there. I printed my copy and it's on my bedroom wall, but it's good. It's, it's very much helped me to, when I got the, uh, the national champion, because I, I read his guidance and I stuck by it. And, um, if you can find it, it's worth a read. Do me a favor, Andy. Absolutely. Scan that sucker and send it over, and I will put it in the show notes at rollandthunder.xyz forward slash 212 for season two, episode 12. No apostrophe, no G. Didn't mess it up. That's right. You'll find links to all of this stuff, all these articles, all of the YouTube channels, the YouTube channels, the uh, Brit Roller 6. Yeah. The Johnny Carson episode we were talking about. All of that will be in there if you want to read up on toilet torture, shortage psychology, etc. You can find it. Anybody else have any last words? <laughs> I, I think we should rename the bar team the Industrial Toilet Roll Team. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. And on that note, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that was eventful. <laughs> yeah, you don't expect these Hall of Fame nominations to get contentious. Well, the stakes are mighty high. <laughs> Speaking of stakes, I just saw on Steven's new DM Armada video with Jimmy from Wizkins that they have officially pushed back the release date of Infinity Gauntlet to July. Well, given the international situation at hand, I'm sure that's not a surprise to anyone. Before we sign off, I want to recognize and congratulate Michael Warner and Peter Vanderveld for solving our last puzzle. We've got plans to record a video with their solutions in the near future, so keep your eyes out for that. My galore, shall we hit it and quit? All right, stay safe out there and sign up for one big weekend CCT. Slangafold! Well, that's the end of Turn 5, my friends, and it's time for the final clear. We hoped you enjoyed today's show. You can find us at rollinthunder.xyz without a G or an apostrophe, where you'll discover all the links necessary to listen or subscribe to the show. You can also reach us by email at arge or lucan at rollinthunder.xyz. Our theme music was created by Jesse Weiner. We're in no way affiliated with WizKids, other than we love and celebrate the game of Dice Masters. So keep on rolling, August Narlagajia the Lao. We'll be talking again in two weeks' time with another guest. So stay tuned, enough said. I went for a wee when I went for a wee when Chris started talking and I managed to come back and he was still talking. And Why say things in ten words when you can say them in a hundred? You know Brevity's I mean? overrated, right? Yeah. A couple of weeks ago in the monologue, remember I was talking about shortages, we got a gas shortage, energy shortage, price of food, and I started talking about a toilet paper shortage. I had seen a line in the paper that some congressman, somebody had said that it looks like because there's a bulk shortage of paper, it was going to affect the toilet paper situation. And uh, I made some jokes about it. And uh, it's caused some problems, believe it or not, and I don't want to be remembered as the man who... All of my life as an entertainer, I don't want to be remembered the man who created a false toilet paper scare. I've done a lot of mean things in my life, but I hate to think of people sitting around <laughs> and just sitting around because, because of me. So apparently there is no great shortage. I'm going to save this myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
So I don't, don't rush into the markets and buy up all the toilet paper. Apparently there is no shortage, but the stores, all the people believe you when you say something. <laughs>